Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On the show, I have author Tim Marzenko. Tim has written two books, Disembodied Voices, True Accounts of Hidden Beings, and Gone Cold, Death and Disappearances in the North Woods. I wanted Tim on the show to talk about his second book, Gone Cold, which looks at missing persons cases in my hometown province of Ontario. Gone Cold is incredibly gripping and exhaustively researched. I was delighted that Tim wanted to come on the show to discuss his book, The Writing Process, and some of the cases he spent so much time researching. You can find both of Tim's books on Amazon in print and audio format. I've linked them in the description. You can also find Tim on Facebook and Instagram, which I've also linked in the description. Here's my conversation with Tim. Like, what was the origin? You know, take us back to the first book. Like, what was the spark that made you go? You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna write a book about this. Yeah, that's like a, a much longer, you know, over decades kind of answer. But I've always been interested in these types of stories, this, these mysterious disappearances. Um, I don't, I should probably state right away that I don't cover or investigate cases that are obviously criminal. I don't go near those. Um, I'm not a police officer. I, uh, I don't touch homicides or things like that. I'm only drawn to cases that are mysterious with very little... Um, very little details. Um, always been interested in those. They always just kind of got under my skin and kind of left like this haunting feeling with me, even as a young boy. And I would be drawn to, you know, books and TV shows that cover these topics. And I just kind of carried, kind of carried that with me my whole life. And it grew with me. And when I was older, I would follow, follow these stories in like the newspapers and, you know, clip them out. And um, just really attracted to these mysteries. They kind of just never left my mind probably because you know they could it seems like they could happen to anyone and that was that was terrifying 
for me. Um, that anyone could just vanish, it seemed. We're going to talk about Gone Cold in a minute, but I'm curious. I haven't read, I, I've read Gone Cold, uh, and thank you for the, the copy of that. And we're going to talk about Disembodied Voices, your first book, True Accounts of Hidden Being. Was there a case that kind of sparked all of this? Like, was there was there something in particular that was like, oh, I've, I've really got to expand on this and I've got to jump into researching it? So with the Disembodied Voices, um, that's, it's a very different book. It's a um, supernatural folklore-type-based book about uh, these forest entities or disembodied voices that kind of lure people uh, away from safety, typically into the forest or the wilderness area. And um, there's many different answers uh, that folklore provides about what happens next. And I developed this theory about how the voice works in this book. And it's basically the lure, which is, they kind of, it kind of gets your attention, these voices. The trap um, kind of holds you and pulls you in. And then the lost is the, the third step in the, in the kind of three-tiered formula. And the lost is basically people who follow these voices and don't come back. Um, so I, I'd always been interested in, you know, in missing persons cases. But in this book, I kind of, you know, just you know, added a few of those missing persons cases towards the end just to kind of, you know, beef up the end of that theory. Like, what, what does that look like when people follow that voice? Like, what happens next? Well, if no one's there to see them follow the voice, then they, they do vanish. There is no evidence of where they went or where they were last seen. And uh, so I did have research material from the first book. Um, actually, I had a lot left over. And it really kind of, you know, just built up. And I just kept researching. Like, once the book was done, I just kept digging and digging and digging. And I was like, I should really tackle this missing person problem and see if there's, you know, just explore all, like, the, the theories and, you know, everything that's, you know, all consuming about this topic, right? Yeah, that's incredible. And uh, your description of your first book there makes me even more curious to check it out. Uh, it sounds absolutely fascinating. It sounds like you really have a penchant for exploring um, unique theories, which we'll, we'll get into with the second book in a little bit. Uh, but I first wanted to kind of start with, one of the things I really appreciated about Gone Cold is that you covered missing persons cases that I had never heard of. I mean, I'm from Ontario. Uh, I live in BC now, but uh, you know, I'd never heard of any of the cases that you put in the book. Uh, and then even when I Googled the the names of some of them, like, just the the starting point to try and get any information about some of these people like there was hardly anything so i'm curious like i guess it's kind of a two two part question but like what made you want to cover unpopularized missing persons cases and you know i guess like what kind of a challenge was that to try and get some of the research for this book because like i said when i googled these i was like wow there's not a whole lot here to go on yeah it was extremely challenging and even today i'm still having um difficulties finding any more information about these cases. Um, like the research process is ongoing because they're, you know, it's just something that you don't, you don't stop. But um, I wanted to focus on the lesser known cases because, uh, well, they were the most mysterious and they lacked details. Now, to me, if I were to disappear and there was one sentence blurb written about me uh, in the, on the police websites and on the internet, 
you know, that would not be good enough for me. I would not feel um, that that's worth, that's not worth it. I feel like these people deserve more. Um, their life cannot be summed up in one sentence, especially because, you know, it's a very vague sentence. Maybe it says, you know, so-and-so was last seen here. Um, if you have any information, call this number. And, you know, these, <laughs> that's pretty much what some of these blurbs are. And it really didn't sit well with me that that's all we knew. You know, maybe, like, what, what kind of pants they had on, you know, what color of jacket. But there really wasn't much info. And I was really, I wanted to kind of flesh out these cases and try to fill in those gaps that, you know, police and, like, early investigators had missed. Um, because it seemed like no one was really fighting for these cases anymore. You know, they're not, like, the big you know, media stories, you know, they're not spotlighted in the media because, you know, some of these are like 60 years old. No one, no one really, no one knows about them, basically. Um, they don't make big headlines. Even back in the day when I was, when they first disappeared, some of these people didn't even get, you know, in the newspapers. Um, there's some cases I investigated and I didn't find one article about a search or, you know, something like that. And that was just crazy to me that there was no paper trail or anything. So, yeah, I just wanted to focus on those lesser known cases to kind of beef them up and hopefully give them a fighting chance so they would not be kind of forgotten. Yeah, and kudos to you because uh, I think it's super, super important to to bring these cases to the forefront and give them the, the due diligence. And, you know, I think accurately i think i would call these historical cases as well in that you know like you said some of them are 50 60 years gone by and i think as we know a lot of us know i'm sure you have too um you know the older some of these cases get the more they seem lost to the past i'm just curious like what was your your research uh, methodology like were you in archives was it you know um I, I know in the book you talk about trying to file uh, foi requests like can you tell me a little bit about what that was like because again these c- cases are very historical so i imagine you really had to dig to try and find that information yeah i looked everywhere under every rock and tree you could say like i started with um any official documents i could find uh, any police reports, things like that. Uh, I scoured the archives of Ontario, the archives of Canada, um, any media or, um, sorry, uh, newspaper databases as well. Um, now, n- newspapers aren't as accurate, obviously, as official documents, but they do give uh, kind of anchor points for things such as dates and um, those involved. So those, while, you know, need to be cross-checked, they, are, they can be very valuable. Um, and then, you know, the main thing I was after was any kind of primary source. So if there was a surviving uh, member of the search party, a uh, surviving family member that was there, or um, if the investigating officer was still alive, which, you know, in some cases was a long shot, um, you know, those, that's the data I really wanted. I wanted accurate uh you know, if I was, if these stories were going to be told one final time uh, in full, I wanted the story to be as accurate as possible, and uh, that's what I was after. So, with the freedom of information requests, I mean, that's a good place to start because it kind of tells you what's available um, and how much the police or any uh, government body knows. You know, you don't have to just submit to the police; you can submit to you know natural resources or things like that. 
Um, but there's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of privacy concerns that stand in your way of finding the truth. And uh, that was, you know, years of roadblocks and, you know, appeals for me, uh, things like that. And pretty much had to plead my case multiple times for every uh, individual that I was investigating. Um, and, you know, the, the censors uh, will hide behind these, like, uh, certain rules, but without um, context of the actual case. Uh, it's very hard to justify the, the, these rules in the Privacy Act. Um, so that was very difficult to get through. And a lot of the times they would say um, they couldn't find the records. The records didn't exist, things like that. And then I would submit, you know, three years later and say, oh, we did find some records. Uh, we'll give you partial records. So it was very inconsistent um, that was probably one of the biggest challenges. Yeah, I really identified with your frustration about FOIs. That's something that I've done in the past for research, and uh, it can be very, very frustrating. Uh, and it's I think a lot of people don't understand how long of a process it can be. Like I remember it taking like up to a year to get documents, um, you know, from a from a government body. So kudos to you oh, for yeah. sticking with it. Yeah, and I you can definitely you get a sense of the frustration, especially to the audiobook, you know, with you narrating it. Um, that uh, yeah, it was it was something that you really had to kind of. Be tenacious with you know i guess you know what was that like overall like writing the the book was it emotionally draining i mean it, it sounded like it took a long time like what, what was the personal toll on you yeah it was very emotionally draining um you know it was days nights and weekends you know keep in mind i was getting home from like a full day's work and then i was getting on the phone and interviewing family members and like police officers and you know you're kind of like reliving that trauma with like they're reliving that trauma through you and it it takes a lot out of you um and you know you may not realize it at the time uh i, I don't think it hit me until like a couple couple years into the research but i was like just emotionally exhausted and but i was so like driven you know like i wanted to do my best for these people who i've never met and that may sound like kind of silly and kind of, you know, you know, what's, what's the point? But like, I don't know. I just, I just kept putting myself in their shoes. And for me, the, that power, I think power comes from perspective. So if you put yourself in the perspective of a missing person or that person's family, it really gives you this like endless drive and you want to do everything you can you know even you know even though it's an uphill battle you just like that that perspective gives you that strength to just like push through it and there were times where it's like well i feel i feel bad because like maybe i'm upsetting people you know i'm like digging up this grief again or whatever which in some cases was not true um but then i was like well i'm not doing it for them. I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for the person who didn't come home, who can't fight, who doesn't have a voice. And that's kind of what kept me going, even though it kind of, you know, I had like insomnia for a while. And um, yeah, it really, it really was exhausting. 
but um, I wanted to be accurate. You know, my name was on the book, so it had to be my best effort. And I think I did that. I think I, I, you know, I put more than five years into this book, and it's still ongoing. I'm still fighting for these people. I have an adjudication uh, appeal coming up for um, one of these missing people, and you know, I'm still going. It still hasn't left me. So, yeah, that's incredible, and it really, really shows the amount of effort and diligence you've put into it. So, yeah, it's it's absolutely incredible, and I don't think I could have said it any better about what what can drive some of us to want to cover these cases. You know, it's giving a voice to the people who don't have one. So that was incredibly, yeah. incredibly well said. <laughs> Um, yeah, exactly, exactly right. It was like these people can't fight for themselves, so and no one else will. And a lot of people, it was very strange to me because when you're calling a family member, you know, you expect them to answer the phone, and they're like, you know, bawling their eyes out or things like that because it's like a trauma, right? It's it's a loss to to them. But you know, some family members, it's not like that because a lot of these cases are so old that these people have to, it's just, they accept it as part of their lives. But for me, it's, it seems fresh, right? So it's, it's so strange, but like, you kind of have to transform yourself, come at it objectively, but also do your best for that person. Um, I just wanted to say one thing I forgot to mention. Um, another reason why I focused on the cases that had very little information was because recently the existence of these individuals have been called into question. And that's a fascinating thing because, because, because there's very little evidence uh, or data of these people and their disappearances. People are actually starting to believe that these people have been made up. And to me, that is terrifying to have some of these people you know, probably in 50 years, um, be rumors, basically. They could be, they could be internet rumors. And, you know, that's kind of where the data is sitting right now. And so I kind of wanted to give them a fighting chance in that way and put, give them a whole chapter in the book to kind of prove that they existed and kind of tell their story. That's terrifying that people will be trying to erase people's identities based on lack of information about someone's disappearance these are real people like i like i said i yeah not that i at all questioned that when i was listening to the book but i I, you know googled and did some of my own research because i was curious and i was like clearly these are people like there is there there is facts to trace back to and accounts to be like yeah this person existed that's a good segue into the content of the book um you know we're going to do our best to talk about some of it without spoiling too much so that people can go and and actually read it or listen to it i've i've covered um people missing in the outdoors a couple of times on the podcast or more than a couple times a few times uh did a whole series about someone who who vanished while hiking a, a through trail and there's a lot of theories that come up when you're talking about people going missing in the woods or the outdoors. And one thing I really enjoyed about your perspective was that you kind of talked about some of the misconceptions uh, to why people go missing outdoors. And I think one of the, the big ones is a lot of people assume, well, you know, maybe an animal, some sort of animal attack was involved. You know, that seems to be a popular theory amongst people who go missing. Can you talk a little bit about the misconceptions you came across and, and what it was like to kind of dissect them and, and go through them? Yeah, sure. So, as you said, uh, animal attacks, um, predators, that is probably the number one theory you hear about when uh, discussing wilderness disappearances. Uh, 
<laughs> I mean, when someone's attacked by an animal, there's there's evidence of it. There's a sign, there's a scuffle, there's drag marks, there's claw marks, there's blood, there's hair, there's clothing. You're gonna know. I mean, you know, when you go on day hikes and you see, you know, a pile of fur, you know there was an attack there. You know, maybe a fox got a rabbit. There's there's evidence of attacks and predation. So it's very hard to hide um, an animal attack. Um, the cases in this book and the cases I research, uh, when these people go missing and a search uh, uh, follows, there is no trace of this, of this human being ever to be found. Nothing is found. No articles of clothing, no blood, no nothing. So if these people were attacked by an animal, they would definitely find something. Um, but that's not the case here. Um, you know, even a full-grown bear cannot eat a human being in one sitting. Uh, so, you know, and some of these searches hap happen pretty quickly after the person disappears. Um, so, you know, it's very hard to believe in the animal attack theory. Um, you know, another, th another theory is suicide. Um, but if someone's, you know, going to kill themselves, their body, if someone's dead, you know, their body's not going to move. You're going to find them. Um, I thought that was interesting because searchers are very good at what they do. Uh, they know how to beat the bush. Uh, and some of these, you know, search and rescue reports, they're arm's length apart. They're not going to miss uh, a dead person in the forest, either on or off trail. Some of the other ones, uh, drowning, yeah. Um, a lot of these people, I, I mean, the cases I investigate were um, people familiar with the area. They're aware of bodies of water and, and other hazards in their environment. You know, some of these people go missing in their own backyard. So the drowning th theory um, does come up. But, uh, you know, when speaking to coroners, and reading um, those um, textbooks and things like that. Typically, when a body enters a wa the water, uh, it will, uh, at, once it eventually sinks, it will stay at the bottom where it went in, uh, unless there's some kind of underground strong current. Um, so these you know, waterways are pretty heavily surged, dragged, uh, usually divers. Uh, go into the water, so, uh, but no bodies have been found. So we would typically, we would find evidence of uh, any kind of drowning or things like that. Yeah, that's, that's really, really well said. There's a handful of cases in the book, uh, but I wanted to kind of just touch on two that I found particularly fascinating and that I think you found uh, particularly fascinating as well, just based on um, your enthusiasm that comes through. The first one is uh, the disappearance of uh, Vital Vachon, and I believe he was last seen in a lumber camp. But, I mean, as you point out, there's not much known beyond that about his disappearance. I'm wondering, can you tell me, you know, kind of give us an overview about that case? And then what were some of the challenges you faced trying to even get information about his disappearance? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Vital Vachon was uh, of French descent. Um, he worked in a lumber camp um, in Lucas Township which is west of Timmins, Ontario. Uh, this would be a very wooded area, far, far off the highway. Um, he uh, was working in the lumber camp 
uh, and ha- this happened May 1st, 1973. He was an experienced bush worker, and uh, Vachon went into town, took a taxi into town to buy a new chainsaw to bring back to the main lumber camp. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. He was seen buying the chainsaw, returning to the camp, dropping it off, getting in a taxi, and driving or getting dropped off at a friend's trailer um, in the evening around, uh, I think it was around 6.30. Bashan and his friend um, were just drinking in the lumber camp, and he was reported to leave at 8.15 that same night. Uh, his bachelor camp was about, I think it was a mile further down the bush, a mile and a quarter to his bachelor camp. Uh, this would have been a path that he walked every day. Um, so Vachon walked back to his lumber camp that evening. It wasn't until May 7th that the foreman of the operation realized that Vachon had not been to work for a number of days and visited his lumber camp. There was no sign of Vachon at his bachelor camp. And at that point, the police were notified that Vital Vachon was missing. The case was investigated by, um, just to get the officer's name, it was, uh, yeah, Constable William Archibald of the OPP. Uh, he went to the site and interviewed the witnesses, the foreman, the property owner, um, and the individuals that were last seen with Vachon to create a full report. Um, and as, as thorough search as possible at the time was done, according to the police report. Now, in northern Ontario, early May, there definitely would have been snow on the ground. Uh, you know, winter lasts a little bit longer in the north. So I understand that uh, he may have tr- had trouble doing the search just because of the winter conditions. But uh, Archibald came back with another officer, and the area was searched uh, in May, June, and July, and back again in August. Um, Vachon was not reported to be drunk or stumbling when he left for his bachelor camp that night. Um, Police seemed to hatch a theory that uh, he may have wandered off in the wrong direction, possibly fell in a river, uh, or was drunk, even though there was no evidence of him being drunk. 
Um, I filed for the police report in 2017, and I was denied for various privacy reasons. Uh, it was actually a long, long list of reasons, probably, probably two pages of reasons. Um, so at that point, I did, my, I did my own digging elsewhere, went to the archives, um, tried newspapers, tried to look for relatives, but I couldn't find a thing on Vachon. And that was, that was very odd. So at that point, I kind of just had to put on the back burner, work on something else. And then on a hunch, I decided I would resubmit in 2019. Uh, to my surprise, the police did grant me partial access to the report, which I thought was strange because surely the same uh, privacy exemptions would apply. Um, but this is just the kind of inconsistency with the with the act. Um, but anyway, I was able to confirm with the police report that um, police did continue to do searches in the area, um, did hire a helicopter, but there was no mention of any organized search and rescue or police dogs. I don't know. They they continue kind of kind of uh, blamed it on the conditions, but I know search and rescue are very good at what they do and can search for a missing person in the dead of winter. So surely they could search in early May, but for whatever reason, this is not done. Uh, I also learned that police didn't halt operations uh, from the lumber camp. So traffic was able to go, you know, in and out of the area. They were still cutting trees. It was open to locals and hunters. Um, to me, I think this would have hindered the investigation because you're having like people walking in and out, you know, destroying pathways, possibly trampling over evidence without notifying them that, hey, we have a missing man in the bush. Look out for these articles of clothing, things like that. So that was very odd to me. Um, this is the only case I investigated where uh, in a small small window of about six months, police made a motion to close the case. And all the in missing persons investigations I've researched, that never, ever happens. Even the ones from, you know, the 50s, it's always open. The police will always leave it open. But this is the one case that they wanted to hurriedly close it, and I don't really know why they wanted to do that. Especially because not a single trace of Vachon has ever, ever been found. Now, this case was really weird to me. It was super bizarre uh, when I was listening to it as well. What do you, do you have any, like, theories on what happened? Like, did you lean towards anything, or is it just completely baffling? Um, there's nothing I'm leaning to, and that's just because I can't form an opinion just because there's a lack of data. Um, the police did form an opinion, which I just don't, I can't understand how they could have. Uh, the quote from the investigator, Sergeant Rose, was, Vachon became lost while intoxicated and is dead. So that's weird because there's no evidence that he was intoxicated. They also don't know which day he went missing. Vachon was reported last seen on May 1st. He was reported missing to police on May 7th. That's seven days. If he's drunk on May 1st, there, 
there's no way he wouldn't be intoxicated if he went missing, you know, May 4th or May 7th. So without a body, they can't prove he's intoxicated. And there's no evidence. They didn't find anything. So there's no evidence to support that he's dead. So I don't know where they, uh, you know, it's possible they just didn't share all the data. But if he's dead, then the case would be closed. But as of this day, the case remains open. Motion to close the case, uh, it was signed off on. And then, uh, you know, years later, it was not closed. It was remains open. So I don't know why it remains open. It was very weird, but yeah, we still have no idea. Another captivating case from the book is the disappearance of Sander Langman. I was really drawn to this one as well, and there's there's quite a bit to dissect with this case as well. But I'm wondering, can you give us a bit of an overview and and maybe tell 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 the listeners what drew you to this case in the first place? Uh, yeah, Sander was one of those people that just kind of stuck in my head. Um, I would constantly be thinking about a handful of cases. Uh, every night, you know, they just kind of kept me awake and Sander was one of them. And I would often, you know, have like nightmares about it or even just like dream of the location, just like what it looks like and just picture being there and what it was, you know, what surrounded me. Um, Sander was also my age, uh, around my age when he went missing. So I kind of related to him um, and I wanted to tell his story. Uh, the best as I could, and hopefully, you know, do the man some justice. Uh, so Sander was an experienced bush worker. Uh, he was a trapper. He was a prospector. He was the type of person that could survive out there. Uh, he had a lifetime of experience in the bush and um, was uh, living in, you know, remote Ontario, a town called Nikina. Uh, beautiful place you know, surrounded with lakes, great fishing, just perfect for an, an outdoorsman's paradise, basically. Um, so on October 30th, 1960, Sandra Lingman was hired by KRNL Mining to retag mining claims in the Grip Lake area. Uh, that's like way in the middle of nowhere with no road access. The only way into Grip Lake is by foot or uh, canoe or float plane. It's very remote, uh, very wild. So every year, prospectors need to restake their claims or else they're forfeit to and open to other prospectors. Um, you know, prospecting and mining in Northern Ontario is a very competitive uh, industry. So K- KRNO hired Lingman, who had been to the area before, to restake the claims for them. Uh, KRNO accessed the lake by helicopter, which would have been weird in those days, uh, 1960. Usually it was accessed by float plane. Uh, and he was on site in Grip Lake with his brother Wendell. Uh, Vincent Seeley, who was the, one of the owners of the company, Tom Church, and a few other members for a cook and probably a helicopter mechanic. Um, Wendell and Sander left the bush camp at 11.15 in the morning on November 1st. They planned to restate claims and meet back at camp at 5, 5 p.m. 
they go their separate way, and five o'clock rolls around, and Sander does not return. The, the crew gets antsy, uh, a little bit worried, because in November, the night is closing in quickly. But they're not that worried, because, as I said, Sander is a very experienced bushman. He has a sack of food with him. He has a compass. He has matches. He can probably make it out. Maybe he's just a little detained. After five o'clock, he doesn't show up, and Wendell runs into the bush with the gas lamp to look for his brother. He comes back an hour or so later because it's starting to snow and the weather is turning bad with no signs of his brother. From that point on, they turn the helicopter on and run it every two hours to give Sander uh, some bearing to follow out in case he got turned around in the storm. But Sander does not come out. Uh, the next morning, they flew the helicopter to Auden to report Langman missing, and the police uh, sergeant, uh, or sorry, Constable William Jack Hayes of the OPP flew in to investigate. Uh, from that point on, uh, actually the first day, there was 19 volunteers that searched the bush. Uh, they were all flown in, and uh, no trace of Sander was found. Uh, Jack Hayes had to be flown in every day while Sanders' family members stayed on site overnight and searched uh, pretty much all day for their, uh, for their relative. Uh, that was 1960, and not a single trace of Sander Lingman has ever been found. Um, not his clothing, not his compass, not anything. Uh, you know, this is, this is a man that should not have disappeared. Uh, and, and, you know, if something happened, would have known what to do. Again, do you have any theories you're leaning towards, or is it one of those that you just don't have enough information or data? Well, there, I was able to uncover a lot of, a lot of data with this, um, including the officer's field notes and uh, some of the police report. Actually, this is one of the cases I'm appealing now, and I've actually been waiting for that over, for over a year, so I'm hoping to hear back from the adjudication judge about that. Um, the family has a theory. Um, I was able to interview some family members, um, and actually family members of the investigating officer, uh, William Jack Hayes. Um, the family believes that Sandra Lingman was murdered by his employers from KRNO. Uh, now, the owners of KRNO do come with a bit of a shady past. Uh, having said that, they, they have never been convicted of a murder or um, were not known murderers. Um, they did get in legal trouble, uh, and I covered that in the book. Um, but there's no evidence of a murder. And uh, it's funny, when people talk about you know, missing persons cold cases, people think that they're, you know, usually all homicides. But in every case in this book, there is zero evidence of a homicide in any of these cases. In fact, there's more evidence of there not being a homicide in these cases. Um, so the family leads towards a murder. I personally, I don't know. Um, there's just not enough evidence to point to put the blame on someone um i, I don't know I, I 
the lake was searched thoroughly. It's a small lake too. Like it's not even, you know, a few kilometers, maybe long. And they dragged the lake with irons and searched with canoes and everything. They searched for days, and then the family, uh, the family went back in 1961 in the spring to search again, and still nothing was found. It's it's just baffling. Yeah, both the uh, Vital and Sanders' disappearances are absolutely baffling. And it's also incredibly impressive how much effort uh, and time you've put into researching them. So I think, you know, people listening, like, go get the book and read about these cases because they're, they're incredibly important and, and forgotten. Um, and so I think it's, it's really important that people know about them. Something else you bring up in the book that I thought was incredibly fascinating and, and kind of like you said in our back and forth while we were setting this interview up, you know, we could probably spend a whole episode of a podcast talking about this, but I want to touch briefly before we close out on something you bring up, this concept in the book called the forbidden theory. I, I want to be careful here because I don't want to spoil too much for, for the listener because I think it would be in their best interest to read about it. But can you kind of give me an overview um, of this theory, like give the listener a sense of what it is? So, yeah, this was a tough one. I battled with this one for a while because when you're writing a book like this, you're kind of dividing your audience. And I kind of touched, touched on it earlier. Uh, when you're talking about missing person cold cases, there's half of your audience that says, okay, these are, you know, homicides, these are cold cases, this is a true crime book. And then you have the other half who say, you know, this isn't true crime, this is, uh, you know, paranormal, this is something else going on, this is a mystery, uh, mystery. you know, this is, you know, supernatural, some, some would say sometimes, you know. So you're splitting into two camps, and I'm kind of straddling that line and it, it was very difficult. You know, you can't please everyone. And when I was doing the chapters on each individual, I decided not to put any, um, any of the theories that are often discussed in those chapters just to kind of keep them whole and as a dedication to that person. And then I wanted to do its own chapter about, the forbidden theories that are sometimes associated with missing persons cases, you know, anything from environmental theories to, you know, far out supernatural theories to folklore, um, things like that, things that, you know, the police will not entertain, but, you know, you often hear this stuff on like podcasts or like TV shows, you know, they touch on all the theories that, you know, pop up. So, this chapter is dedicated to those. There's a lot in that chapter. There's something for everyone if you uh, have an open mind. And you know, and that's the thing. In the absence of evidence of all of these theories, including homicide, I believe all theories should be addressed. I, I, until we know all the details of a disappearance, we can't and shouldn't confidently eliminate anything. Because what you're doing is you're closing doors on possible answers, you know, um, answers that we may not comprehend, you know, until, you know, 50 years down the road, we, we just, we just, we need to remain open until we have all the data. So I just wanted to put everything on the table. So, you know, there's natural threats out there, such as uh, muskeg, um, which is, a uh, muskeg is like a quicksand, like ground, basically terrain. 
Uh, it covers 1.2 million kilometers squared of Canada. And uh, it's partially decayed vegetation and uh, like a soupy mix of water that can suck anything in, basically. Um, it's been known to suck in tractors, uh, bulldozers. You know, some of those things are 66,000 pounds, and they can swallow them whole. Uh, can swallow moose. You know, in the 1800s when they were laying down uh, train tracks, uh, I found some old journals where some train engines were actually swallowed into the muskeg. So that was one fascinating theory. If it can swallow a, tr a train, it can swallow a human. Um, another one of my personal favorites, and I was surprised that no one really touched on this, was the idea of spontaneous human combustion in the wild. Now, I, for people who don't know what that is, it's where the human body can, uh, without warning, burst into flames without a known burn agent. Now, scientists say, <clears throat> scientists say it could be something wrong with the body's thermogenesis or with the hypothalamus gland, which regulates body temperature. Um, and if these things go haywire, that I, any person at any time could turn into a fireball from within, and it's localized within the person. So that would mean the environment around it would not be affected or singed by the blaze. Now, the temperature of human combustion is uh, equivalent to a minimum of 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit for 12 uninterrupted hours. And that's double of what a cremation chamber is. Um, spontaneous human combustion is known to happen within minutes. So it doesn't actually tw take 12 hours, but within minutes you can be reduced to ashes. And that would certainly, you know, cause a person to leave no trace in the, in the woods. Um, that's one of my, you know, the creepiest one, because, you know, it's a rare phenomenon. There's no doubt about it. It's rare, but those cases are well documented, usually happening within people's homes, but if they can happen in homes, they can happen to someone who's, you know, in the bush, staking claims, picking berries, whatever, things like that. Um, and then you go on to some of the folklore things. Uh, I'm really into, uh, really interested in the indigenous folklore from all across Canada, actually. Um, something called the Little People of the Mountain, which are fairy-like tricksters that... Uh, are known to tip the boats of canoeists, uh, drowning them. Uh, these beings were said to steal the fish from the nets of the Ojibwe, um, and they are depicted in ochre paintings on the side of cliffs and in rock crevices. Actually, there's a place called Fairy Point that has over a hundred of these pictographs. Um, so I thought I, when I came across folklore like that, I found that really interesting because it kind of directly correlates to people that go missing in terms of geography, but also some of these legends uh, where we have indigenous people saying that these beings are capable 
of taking people away. It's it's a fascinating uh, chapter, and the entire book is incredible. So I want to thank you for uh, not only writing the book and, and sharing it with me, but uh, coming on the show to talk about it. And uh, yeah, I really hope the listeners listening um, pick it up. There's going to be a link in the description uh, where you can get it. So uh, please do. And Tim, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. The pleasure is mine. Thank you so much for having me on and for giving these people some you know some space to to be remembered and uh, to be to be discussed and talk about so so thank you thanks for listening to my interview with Tim You can check out links to his social media and his books, including Gone Cold, in the description. If you enjoyed this episode and want to show appreciation, you can support me by buying a coffee or becoming a Patreon member. The Patreon is only $5 a month, where you can enjoy ad-free episodes, exclusive content, and early access to all new episodes of the podcast. Both Buy Me a Coffee and Patreon are linked in the description. You can also support the podcast by leaving a 5-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Follow the Missing and Unexplained podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for updates and new content. Thanks for listening and supporting the pod. I'll catch you soon.